So we have a full house this morning, um, hence the choir are staying in their seats because there's nowhere for them to sit down there. I hope you'll all be back next week. Yeah. <laughs> it's been an interesting life uh, week in the life of the Forsyth household, uh, and I wanted to uh, share with you some conversation I had with some friends. I thought you might find this amusing. Um, I was sitting with some friends, and they asked me if I was nervous about preaching this Sunday, and I told them, I'm nervous about preaching every Sunday. <laughs> I then got a list of advice that I'll leave up to you. It may come more from Job's comforters than from true friends. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it started out pretty well. It started out pretty well with someone who said, don't be nervous, they've heard a hundred of your sermons already. Okay. Second friend then piped up, maybe that should make you nervous. <laughs> a third one then said, yeah, you know, really, today of all days, don't make today your worst one. <laughs> and then finally another friend on another day said my favorite line, which was, Don't preach on tithing. (laughs) So, I'd like to publicly not thank my friends (laughs) for all the help they've not given me this week. It's a joy and it's a privilege to be here again with you all in this place that is ours to come and focus not on ourselves, but upon Jesus who is born to save. A privilege for us to be together, to open up his word and to hear from him and to be taught and instructed and encouraged by him, and I hope and pray that that will be your experience and my experience together this morning as we work our way through this text. The book of Micah, we know from verse 1 of chapter 1, was written between 735 and 700 BC. This makes Micah a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, and that tells us that he was prophesying during a very bleak and fearful time in the history of Israel. God's people at this time were divided into two parts. There was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And for both regions, things were bad. The Assyrian armies were casting a shadow of dread across the entire region. And the Assyrians were a bad group of dudes. Okay, Think Lord of the Rings, think the hordes, think the violence and brutality that you can picture in your mind. They had rolled through and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722. And things were bad, but they were only going to get worse. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Verse warning that more defeat is coming. A defeat so overwhelming that the very leaders of Israel will be struck on the cheek. The very leaders will be at the playthings of their enemies, being toyed with as a mouse with a cat. Now, scholars are divided as to exactly when this verse refers to. Does it refer to the Assyrian siege that would bleed Judah to within an inch of its life in 701? Or does it refer to the Babylonian domination that would come later in 597? We don't know, but either way, the point is clear. Things are bad for God's people, and they're only going to get worse. That may resonate with you this morning. You may also be in bleak and fearful circumstances, perhaps because of things on the national level, discouraging cultural trends or uh, discouraging world events, perhaps on the professional level. The economy is not what it has been. We have all seen better days. Uh, Perhaps you are struggling to find uh, a job, an employment, vocation that will be uh, fulfilling uh, to you. 
Perhaps it's uh, more spiritual reasons. Perhaps you're confused about God, confused about what your relationship with him should look like, confused as to even he, whether he even uh, exists. Perhaps you do believe that he exists, but you're caught in some sin, some struggle, some difficulty that is weighing you down. Perhaps it's a relational thing. Someone you're struggling to forgive. Someone in your life is driving you crazy. Things that make life bleak and fearful. If you are in this circumstance this morning, then be encouraged. Be encouraged. Why? Because Micah comes and into this context of humiliation and into this context of helplessness, he speaks a word of hope. A word of hope that is for God's people this morning. We're going to look at two things in this text. We're going to see something that is little, something that is we, something that is insignificant. And then we're going to see something that is large, something that is big, something that is significant. So let's start with looking at our our little thing. And this little thing is Bethlehem. Read verse 2 with me. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient of days. This verse tells us that a Savior is coming and that he will come from Bethlehem. Ephrathah is just uh, another uh, older name for Bethlehem. It's a hard word to say. I'm always impressed when our kids come up and do the call to worship and say Ephrathah without uh, pausing. And uh, we know that this is a, a messianic verse, that is a verse that promises the coming of the Messiah, of the Savior, of Jesus. This verse has always been understood this way. You may remember in Matthew chapter 2 when Herod inquires, where will the Savior be born? The scribes and the Pharisees respond with, in Bethlehem. And then they quote this text. This text has always been understood as a reference to the coming of Jesus. It is Jesus, the Messiah, who will come forth from God, the text says, who will rule over Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. This messianic interpretation is then confirmed by verse 3. First half of verse 3 says that he shall give them up, that he being God shall give them, that is God's people, God will give his people up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. In other words, God's people will be separated from him. There will be a distance between God and his people until that day when Mary gives birth. Then we read the second half of verse 3, the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. The rest of Jesus' brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Jesus will gather us and bring us back to the Lord. He will bring an end to the separation that exists between God and his people, reconciling us to God through his work on our behalf. Now the fact that this verse is messianic is staggering in and of itself. This text was written some 700 years before Jesus was born. If you're exploring or perhaps skeptical about the Bible, this is something for you to really wrestle with this morning. If the Bible is a myth, if it is a fairy tale, how do we account for these startling predictions? Jesus born in Bethlehem, an undisputable fact of history, predicted some 700 years before it took place. What do you do with that fact if this is not the word of God. If it is the word of God, then be encouraged. This is an encouraging thing because we are basing our lives upon something that has great substance to it. We are basing our lives upon something that has been given to us by the Lord himself and we can trust it as surely as we trust him with our lives. But the main point of all this is actually to focus upon the smallness of Bethlehem. The main point for just now is the shocking revelation that Jesus is to be born in 
Bethlehem. Why is this shocking? Because Bethlehem is a wee little town in the middle of nowhere that has absolutely no significance whatsoever. It's not the kind of town you expect a saviour to be born. We expect a saviour to be born in D.C. (laughs) Or L.A. Or some other place you can refer to by initials. NYC, ATL. We expect the saviour to be born in a place of uh, significance and uh, importance. Uh, We don't expect him to be born in this place in the middle of nowhere. I I was trying to think of an example, you know, place like, and then I realized I was running the risk of offending all my American friends, so I thought, we don't expect him to be born in Canada, right? <laughs> Probably just lost a few votes right there. <laughs> Jesus is born in Bethlehem, this place of no significance. So insignificant is Bethlehem, in fact, that when the tribes, uh, when the the towns of of Judah are assigned to them in in the book of Joshua, we read of more than a hundred cities that are allotted to the tribe of Judah. Bethlehem is so small it doesn't make the list of the top 100. It is a nothing town. Two quotes. First, the primary significance of Bethlehem is its very insignificance. Second, here we see a frequent tendency in God's ways, for God is prone to choose the obscure, the insignificant, the lowly, the common, the unnoticed as the very instruments through which he displays the brightest flashes of his glory. Bethlehem is little, it is insignificant, and this teaches us the principle that in God's economy, strength always comes through evil. In God's economy, strength always comes through weakness. He takes what is little, he takes what is insignificant, he takes what is trivial, and he uses it to accomplish great things. If Jesus had been born in D.C., we would have welcomed him, and we would have said, oh, we're glad you're here, and come and meet uh, some of my high-powered friends, and let me give you a tour of the capital, and yeah, we're glad you're here, because we need your help. And you know what we would have done when he didn't meet our expectations? We'd have crucified him. We'd have crucified him would have crucified him. The deepest meaning of the littleness, one preacher says, and insignificance of Bethlehem, is that God does not bestow the blessings of the Messiah, the blessings of salvation, on the basis of our greatness or our merit or our achievement. God takes what is little, what is insignificant, what's trivial, and uses it to accomplish great things. How does this apply to us? A couple of thoughts this morning. First of all, this principle is central to how you become a Christian. This principle is central to how you become a Christian. If you're here this morning exploring these things, we're thrilled you're here and want you to know that the gospel is not a kind of self-help guide to make you a better person in order that God might be pleased with you. It's not about coming to church and doing the right things and putting on the good face and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps so that you might become somehow more acceptable to God. The gospel tells us that we are all little, that we are all, in a sense, insignificant because of our sin. And yet, we are not little or insignificant to Jesus. He came to do all that was necessary so that we might be forgiven. And we come to God on this basis, on the basis of weakness, entering his presence and saying, God, I have not lived the life I ought to have lived. And I have guilt and I have shame, but you are the God who loves to forgive guilt and shame. 
You cannot become a Christian if you don't realize that you must come in weakness. And so this morning, if you are aware of your weakness and if you are aware of your guilt and aware of your shame, you are close to the kingdom. And if you would come and ask forgiveness in Jesus' name, you will receive it full and free. This principle applies to us as we become Christians, but this principle also applies to us as we live as Christians. Two quick ways. First of all, it's a challenge. Secondly, it's an encouragement. A challenge and encouragement as we live as Christians. The challenge is simply this. Be very careful if you think you're something. Be very careful if you think you're something. God opposes the proud. And I'm not sure if there is anything more terrifying than being opposed by God. Do you see, we live in a town of power, of influence, of name-dropping and prestige, and you be careful lest you think you're something. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord, coming as his redeemed children, welcomed by his grace, welcomed in our weakness, as we are, not as we ought to be, confessing that the merit is his. Secondly, it's an encouragement. It's an encouragement, why? Because if you think you're nothing, you're something, because to Jesus, you're everything. If you think you're nothing, then you're something, because to Jesus, you are everything. God opposes the proud. I can't think of anything more terrifying, but he gives grace to the humble, and I can't think of anything more encouraging. Yes, he opposes the proud, but he also gives grace to the humble. He is the God whose strength is made perfect in weakness. No better illustration than Jesus himself, who is born into Bethlehem to an unwed teenage mother who lives his life in obscurity. We know pretty much nothing about him for the first 30 years. Then what we do find out is that he is opposed at nearly every step. And then he dies in absolute shame upon a cross. There's no better example of strength through weakness than Jesus himself. And as his brothers and as heirs with him, God is pleased to be at work through our weakness to display the brightest flashes of his glory. MPC is a home. This church is a home with opportunities for people who are weak. And so if you are weak this morning, you feel unfit to serve, unable to serve, I tell you, you are the most qualified. And this is the place for you. So we start with Bethlehem. Significant because of its insignificance. And it teaches us about how God works. He takes little things, insignificant things, trivial things, and uses them to display his glory. This principle teaches us much as we become Christians, but also as we live as Christians. Secondly, we see something large in this text. This text is not all small. We see something large. We see something grand. We see Jesus himself. Three ways that this text emphasizes the size and significance of Jesus. Let's look at them together. First of all, it tells us emphasizing Jesus' size and significance by telling us that Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd. Look at verse 4. And he, who is he? The Messiah, Jesus. He shall stand and shepherd his flock. Who are the flock? His people. It's us. Jesus shall stand and shepherd us in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Jesus is our shepherd who protects us. 
against our enemies, against the wolves that come, against anyone in your life who gossips about you or lies about you or opposes you unjustly, who discourages you or neglects you. Jesus is there to be your shepherd. Your shepherd sees and he will not allow you to endure more than you can bear. He protects you from your enemies as your shepherd. He also protects us from ourselves. He protects us from ourselves. When we are quick to wander off, when we are quick to neglect the things of the faith, when we have those seasons in our lives, when we wander far from him, he is the shepherd who goes after the lost. He pursues the one, leaving the 99 to drag us home. And so if you have been wandering, be encouraged this morning because Jesus, your shepherd, sees and he is on a mission to bring you back home. Our shepherd protects us. Our shepherd provides for us. I love that verse in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Nothing in this life that you need will be withheld from you. He is here to provide in every way. I really enjoy how the text sort of teaches us about how Jesus, is, Jesus shepherds. First of all, it tells us that he stands to shepherd his flock. Throughout our study on Hebrews, we spoke a lot about how Jesus sits. This was pointing toward the fact that his work as Savior has been completed. Everything that needed to be done so that we could be saved has been completely fulfilled. And so Jesus sits at rest because there's nothing else for him to do. Here, though, we get this picture that as our shepherd, Jesus stands. He stands because he is vigilant. He stands because he is on his toes. He stands because he is ready to help us. He is active and engaged in our lives, ready to help however we may need. Then we're told that he shepherds in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of his name. The majesty of his name. There is nothing unsteady or tentative or insecure about the way in which he shepherds us. He's not just ready to help, he is able to to help. Our shepherd who is ready and able to help us. I'm going to leave that point there and next week is the shepherd scandal. We have Dr. Brian Chappell coming from Covenant Seminary to preach on this theme and so we will move on from it just now. But the first way in which our text emphasizes the size and significance of Jesus by showing us that he is our shepherd, protecting and providing. Secondly, our text says that not only is Jesus our shepherd, but he is also our security. Look with me at the second half of verse 4. Jesus is our shepherd, but he is also our security. They, that is, God's people, shall dwell secure. For now he, Jesus, shall be great to the ends of the earth. We can dwell secure because Jesus is great to the ends of the earth. The phrase dwell secure uh, translates a, a verb that literally means to sit which is a great contrast between the first and second half of the verse. Jesus stands. He is active, ready, and able to help us. And because he stands, we can sit. Because he is active, we can be at rest. Because he is fighting on our behalf, we can be still. This picture of security that comes with our shepherd. He is great to the ends of the earth, we read. Dads, mums too, but especially dads, I think it's important to wrestle with your children. I think it's important. They love it, first of all, um, but you're also modeling two things that I think are important for them. First of all, you're modeling strength. Don't you love it when your four-year-old comes at you with a face that is assured she's going to win this fight? You, know? <laughs> you kind of look down at her. Um, 
and then she leaps on you and you kind of engulf her in your arms and she has absolutely no chance. <laughs> Unfortunately, they start getting bigger and my boys, I'm already beginning to feel that a little bit. But, yeah. <laughs> um, some of you other dads will need to give me instructions for those days. Um, but they jump on you, you envelop them in your arms and you model strength. But as you model strength, you also model care. Because you never use that strength for anything but their benefit. You never use that strength to harm them. You use that strength to tickle them. You never use that strength in a way that would bring them sadness or sorrow. You only use that for their good. And so here in Jesus, we get this picture of strength and this picture of care. Our shepherd and our security. He is the one that has all the power in the world and only ever wields it for the benefit of his people. And you know, your kids, they feel secure after you wrestle with them. Nearly always, after you wrestle with your kids, they'll come sit in your lap for a while. Because there's that sense of safety. And when you see Jesus in his strength and in his care, you come and you just sit in his lap for a while. You exhale and enjoy the tender care that comes in his security. He is great to the ends of the earth. Thirdly, finally, our text emphasizes the size and significance of Jesus as our shepherd, as our security, and also as our peace. Look with me at the first part of verse 5. And he, Jesus, shall be there, his people's peace. Jesus will be our peace. Interesting, isn't it, that it doesn't say Jesus will give us peace. It says that he is our peace. It isn't something that he gives us. It's something that he is for us. He is our prince of peace. First and foremost, in this context, it of course refers to peace with God. The Messiah has come in order that we might be a people who have peace with God, who are in a good relationship with him. And the book of Micah speaks so beautifully about the reconciliation that is ours, the peace that we have with God. Turn with me to uh, the last words of the book of Micah, chapter 7, verse 18, where we read, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, but delights in steadfast love. God is the God who draws us into a delightful, peaceful relationship through his son. Of course, this peace extends to one another. This is why we have the the giving of the peace. We're not just filling time. We're looking for something to do. We are extending to one another the peace that has been given to us by God so that our relationships can also be marked and characterized by peace, that there can be forgiveness and freedom in the relationships in this place. Jesus also, of course, gives us peace with ourselves, peace in our own hearts, in our own souls, in our own minds. He is the Prince of Peace who is our peace. What does it mean that Jesus is our peace? Let me give you an image that has been alive in my mind this week. It comes from Luke chapter 8, where we read Jesus doing something kind of unusual. And Jesus is prone to do that. He, he does things and he says things that are just a little odd. He does things and says things that we wouldn't do. And we sometimes have to take a while to figure out what it is he's up to. 
at this place in Luke chapter 8, he's out uh, on the sea with his disciples, and a terrible storm is coming down upon them. Now remember that the disciples are a bunch of rugged sailing types. They don't get terrified by a small storm. This is a big raging squall, and it has come down on them, and the water's coming over, and they're fearing for their lives. And in the midst of this terrible scene where there's panic and chaos everywhere, you remember what Jesus is doing. He's asleep. That's weird. (laughs) And they wake him up, and Jesus says, do you have no faith? And if I was there, I'd be like, no. (laughs) (laughs) We're dying here. And Jesus stands up, and he tells the wind and the wave to be calm and be still, and all is well. The powerful thing about that story, though, Or let me tell you how it shouldn't be preached. It breaks my heart, and I hope a holy hatred in my soul when I hear that text preached. What are the storms in your life? Have faith and they'll be still. Do you know what? They might not be. And this morning, during the first service, Mark Scott died. He died having been ravished at a young age, early 40s, from the effects of Alzheimer's. That did not happen because he did not have enough faith. The storms come because we live in a broken and fragile world. And the point of this text is not believe and Jesus will come and give you peace. The point is that even in the midst of these storms, even in the midst of these trials, even in the midst of this death, dare I say this when Mark Scott has died? I say it all the more when Mark Scott has died. In the midst of these situations and in the midst of these circumstances, we are able to take our eyes off the storm and fix them on Jesus. We're able to take our eyes off the storm and nap with our Savior in the boat. He may come the storm, he may not. Either way, he can be your peace. He can be your peace. Peace greater than the waves. Peace greater than the wind. Peace greater than Alzheimer's. And right now, Mark is enjoying it all. In the face of life's Assyrians, we are a people who can take a nap in the boat because Jesus is our peace. Our passage shows us something wicked. It shows us Bethlehem. And it teaches us that God uses sweet things. He uses insignificant things, trivial things, to accomplish great things. That's very important for us. It's how we become Christians. It's how we live as Christians. But our passage doesn't just show us something little. It shows us something large, something sizable, something with great significance. Jesus himself, who is our shepherd. He is our security. He is our peace. Is it any wonder we celebrate at Advent? We have a glorious gospel, and it's a good day to be following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word and for the clarity with which it speaks to our hearts and our very souls. We thank you that in the midst of our weakness, you come as our shepherd, our security, our peace, so that we can take our eyes off the storm and nap with you a while. Lord, I pray for Kimberly and for Kate that right now, you would draw near to them as their shepherd's security and peace. 
and that they would grieve like those who have hope, for they know that even now Mark is resting with his Savior. And if this can be true for them, even for them, in the midst of this storm, we trust and believe it can be true for us as well. Yet strangely, Lord, we sometimes find it harder to have faith for our own situations than we do for other people's. And so I pray that you would come through the power of your Spirit to overwhelm us with this truth that we might rest in you. We pray it in your perfect and matchless name. Amen.